0: Hi, Dr. Summers.
1: Thank you. Just wanted to make sure somebody can hear me.
0: (laughs) I can hear you well. Okay.
1: Can folks see my title page? Yep. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Gonna give one more minute and I'm gonna get started. So um, today's um, article was prompted by a uh, comment that was made to me by a resident, and I'll get to that. Uh, and the subject is whether we should continue to uh, offer uh, plasmaphresis therapy to patients who have anchovasculitis, which is uh, severe. Um, I have no disclosures. Now, I guess I'm not making any off-label drug use recommendations. I'm not sure whether Cytoxan or Rituximab has ever been approved by the FDA for use in anchovasculitis. It certainly is clinically um, the norm. Um, so back when I was a first-year fellow, uh, Ben Fletterer got up. Uh, to give a talk on plasmapheresis in some condition or the other. And um, he really was able to say, this is an article on plasmapheresis when a uh, staff member who will remain unnamed said, this is a lousy paper. Um, and uh, it continued in that vein. Ben was actually not able to finish his talk uh, either. And when he went back to the... Um, we got back to the fellows room, he was rather dejected and he was like, I thought I was going to just give, you know, give the data and then say, this is a lousy paper, but nobody ever allowed me to get there, which led to my first rule for fellows, which is never present a paper on Um And then later in that same year, when I was a first year fellow, uh, Mike Krauss got up to give a uh, New England Journal, to present a New England Journal article on something, and um, it was like he was walking around with a target on his back, uh, given the general questions, including the usual observation that's made whenever you give a New England Journal article of, I don't understand how this ever made it in the New England Journal. Um, and so that led to rule number two, which is never present a paper from the New England Journal. And I'm going to break both of these rules today because I'm no longer a fellow. I'm sort of the other end of the spectrum from being a fellow. I'm the old dude. Um, so, uh, the objective of this is to d- discuss a historical paper called the MEPEX trial, then to discuss uh, the data from a more recent trial, and to see if really this new, more recent trial uh, cha- is going to change our clinical practice in terms of uh, how we treat severe anchovasculitis. There are some points to make uh, about this. Uh, there is a prehistory of this prior to the MEPEX trial, and there were a number of studies which were done, and they uh, individually suffered from various problems, including small size, lack of randomization, and a poor description of procedures. Uh, some of them suffered from more than one of these uh, defects. Would um, you mind canceling my meeting with... I would also like to point out Uh, if you ever get asked this, that there are, in fact, no randomized trials supporting the use of plasmapheresis for pulmonary hemorrhage in good pastures nor in pulmonary vancovasculitis, despite that being one of the conditions in which we recommend it. Uh, The history of that is that there was a trial of 10 people who received plasmapheresis. I believe this this was actually prior to the good pastures And um, uh, before ANCAs were readily available, but after um, anti-GBM was readily available, uh, back in the 80s there was a trial where they took 10 people with um, pulmonary hemorrhage uh, and uh, did plasmapheresis and had um, good outcomes in nine of them, compared them to historical controls, and the author said, "Well." We should probably plasma freeze everybody, and that's where that has come from. I believe there's still no randomized trial um, in those condi- in that condition. Uh, my own uh, anecdotal experience is that if I had a patient who had anchovasculitis due to good pa- due to anti-GBM disease, uh, or excuse me, had an anti-GBM disease resulting in pulmonary hemorrhage. Uh, I would be very loath not to plasma freeze them on the basis of a single uh, very bad outcome. Um, okay, come on. Yeah. Last point. This is not a theoretical talk. Uh, for those who are new to Iowa, uh, we will see anchovasculitis. We have a lot of anchovasculitis anky- here and it tends to occur in winter. So uh, I suspect you are going to be able to Use your um, the information from this talk and make your decision about whether to pay attention to this latest paper uh, sometime in the next couple of months, two or three months. Uh, vasculitis is the most common RPGN. Kidney involvement occurs in 70% of patients. 30% of patients don't have it, mostly a lung thing. And uh, there are plenty of studies showing that immunosuppressives and steroids can uh, prevent end-stage renal disease, and certainly there are studies from the early 70s uh, demonstrating uh, that steroids prolong life. Uh, The MEPEX trial is the one that I've always been quoted, and it's the criteria that I have always used uh, to determine whether somebody needed plasmapheresis or not, partly because It was rather clear cut and had simple criteria. So this was a randomized trial of uh, plasma exchange, seven exchanges given over two weeks, and versus IV methylprednisolone, 1,000 milligrams a day for three days in biopsy-proven ANCA-associated systemic vasculitis, whose serum creatinine was greater than 5.8 milligrams per deciliter. And that is chosen because this was a Euro trial and they used micromoles of greater than 500. I would also point out that this is not how we treat patients anymore because you don't do plasma, ex- make your decision for somebody with severe vasculitis are you going to give plasma exchange or are you going to methylprednisolone? We throw the whole kitchen sink at them uh, and do both. So, uh, at least in my experience, the primary outcome of this was dialysis independence at three months with secondary outcomes of renal survival at a year, patient survival at a year and severe um, adverse events. Um, They used oral cyclophosphamide. This was before the era of rituximab uh, on a particular schedule, which is fairly straightforward. Uh, At six months after oral cyclophosphamide, they used um, azathioprine, two milligrams per kilogram uh, starting at six months, and uh, it could be continued uh, beyond the 12 months of the trial if the, if the staff felt like it. The uh, oral prednisolone was one milligram per kilogram per day, tapered as per the schedule there, and again the phoresis was seven treatments within 14 days, and the uh, solumedrol was a thousand milligrams a day for three days. If you had uh, anti-GBM disease and you had anchovasculitis, those with dual antibodies were excluded. If you had been on dialysis for greater than two weeks, you were excluded. Notice that's greater than two weeks. We'll compare that with the later trial. Uh, you, were ex- you had to be between the ages of 18 and 80. If you had HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, you were excluded. If you had alveolar hemorrhage, you were excluded and went straight to plasmapheresis at that time. And if you had some evidence of uh, chronic kidney disease one year before entry, you were also excluded. Uh, this is what happened. They screened 151 patients. 14 got excluded, 137 randomized slightly more randomized to plasma exchange. Uh, there were 11 deaths in the methylprednisolone arm, 11 deaths in the plasma exchange arm. But there were more cases of ESRD, or at least dialysis at three months, in a methylprednisolone arm than there were in the plasma exchange arm. Um, the... Um, at three months, they evaluated the primary endpoint. Uh, in uh, each group, there were five, there were more deaths and more ESRD that occurred over the course of the next nine months. Uh, and uh, there were 29 dialysis independent patients here and 41 dialysis independent patients uh, on those who received plasma exchange. Uh, and there were fewer patients who were described as ESRD, which I find a little bit confusing and I wish somebody would explain to me, but. Um, the uh, Your standard baseline characteristics chart, and you can see that the p-value was not high on both of them, their randomization seemed good. Excuse me, the p-value was not low on anybody. Uh, they looked at... Um, Baseline histology uh, and the bottom line is the baseline histology was similar in both groups. You can say, whoa, wait a second, this isn't everybody, and that is correct. They did not examine histology in every single one of their patients. They got about 75% of their patients. So um, the renal recovery was um, better significantly better in the plasma exchange group uh, at three months. The alive and independent at dialysis was better uh, in the plasma exchange group with a significant p-value. And then um, in each group, there were two patients who progressed even after renal recovery to end-stage renal disease. The patient survival was no different, was not influenced by age nor uh, MPO uh, versus uh, PR3, and the causes of death were largely infection, some pulmonary hemorrhage, and cardiovascular disease, which is the same story we've always had from vasculitis and its treatment. Adverse events, uh, thrombocytopenia uh, appears to have been more common in the plasma exchange group, not any surprise there. Um, the infections were similar, leukopenia was similar Uh, and everything else was similar. So a little bit of thrombocytopenia from plasmapheresis. Can't say it never hurt anybody, but it was generally is relatively um, short-lived. And um, between the two groups of those who developed uh, dialysis independence, you can see that the, the serum creatinine's overlapped. So there's no evidence that if you recover kidney function, your kidney function is gonna be better because you freeze them. All you're gonna do is keep them off dialysis with some, some degree of renal insufficiency. And you'll notice the serum creatinine in micromoles. this is about 2.2, that um, most of the patients never got back to uh, normal kidney function. Um, the Cochrane group um, performed a meta-analysis after the MEPEX trial, uh, which included all of the lower lower quality trials done before that, and uh, they, they supported the use of plasma exchange in those whose creatinine is greater than 5.6. Uh, again, for de- decreasing prevention of end-stage kidney disease, don't expect it's going to save people's lives. This is the new trial published, published, published in February of this year uh, in the New England Journal had an international trial, um, lots of authors, lots of centers. Uh, it was a two by two trial uh, and one, one, tri- one uh, dimension was to evaluate plasma exchange versus no plasma exchange and uh, the other was to um, evaluate higher versus slower doses of oral glucocorticoids in subjects with severe ANCA-associated vasculitis. And their uh, definition of severe was a GFR of less than 50 or pulmonary hemorrhage. At this point, uh, you can say to yourself, wait a second, are you saying that if I had somebody who noticed hematuria, came to me, had a GFR of 48 and in my, in my uh, workup, not expecting anything, I found a positive ANCA, that that person would have been randomized to plasma exchange? The answer is, yep. Uh, so that's one problem that we will get to. Uh, They were then randomly assigned, sort of randomly assigned, with 8 million different stratifications to 7 phoresis treatments over 14 days versus no pheresis treatments, and then obviously randomized to the higher dose versus the lower lower dose of glucocorticoids. Uh, They were recruited uh, starting about 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, and ending about 4 years ago. Uh, you could be a 17-year-old and be included. You had to have a uh, diagnosis of GPA or MPA. You had to have a positive test for MPO or PR3. So if you were one of those idiopathic um, large vessel vascul- vasculitis folks, you you were not admitted. You were couldn't get in the study. And again, you had to have a GFR of less than 50 or diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Again, the exclusion criteria were anti-GBM antibodies or a renal biopsy showing linear Ig deposition. So I assume that if, for instance, you were anti-GBM uh, negative but had IgA linear deposition, you would have been excluded from the study. You could now be on dialysis. Remember, the other trial was 14 days. In this case, Uh, You could be on dialysis for 21 days prior to randomization and be entered into the trial. Um, uh, True youth was an exclusion. Pregnancy was an exclusion. And uh, you could get a dose of IV cyclophosphamide. You could get 14 days of oral cyclophosphamide. You could get rituximab. Uh, So you could have been in the last 28 days. So you could have had your disease for nearly a month before entering into the trial, if somebody had just treated you a little bit. So that's kind of loose. Before you got randomized, local uh, investigator had to make a choice whether he was going to do an induction with oral or IV cyclophosphamide or rituximab. So you um, entered into the trial, the local investigator said, Um, this is what I'm going to treat you with, and then we'll see whether you get um, plasma exchange or not. And then you got stratified. Age 60, less than 60, serum creatinine, MEPEX criteria or not. Anti, uh, were you um, anti-PR3 or anti-MPO? Did you have No. Pulmonary hemorrhage, not severe pulmonary hemorrhage, or severe based on, yeah, you're coughing up blood, but what was your PO2? That was what defined the difference between uh, the severity or the not severe. And finally, the planned induction therapy. So there were, while you were randomized, to a certain extent, people were, later people were driven into randomization, I categorize, I suspect, by the stratification. Uh, other treatments, um, you got one gram per day of methylprednisolone for one day to three days. That's not quite standard treatment, at least not around here. And cyclophosphamide uh, could be was given for three to six months, uh, followed by azathioprine. So there was a lot more investigator leeway in how to treat these folks. But again, it was a multinational trial occurring all over the world pretty much. Um, and this is, as I mentioned, they had a high standard dose versus a reduced dose arm. Uh, and um, so the heavier you were in both cases, the higher your dose was. And then um, the low dose got started the same, but got tapered more rapidly and um, And I don't see how, and so this is all complicated, and if you're past 52, uh, you would continue um, if you wanted. This is complicated enough that I don't see how this could be instituted into practice in any given, any easy way. Um, The primary was a, the primary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause or 12 or more weeks of continuous renal replacement therapy or renal transplantation, I assume, in a center which can transplant people like Lightning. Uh, And I find this weird. And the reason I find it weird is there has never been a trial demonstrating that plasmapheresis has any effect on death from any cause? There's no mortality benefit in any previous trial. Did they include death from any cause because of the two by two design, and they wanted to make sure that um, that those folks who had less severe disease were not hurt? I guess so, but that the the use of a composite primary endpoint is usually driven, in my experience of designing trials, which is an N of one, by the fear that any one of your main outcomes is not gonna reach significance. I just find it odd. Uh, The secondary outcomes were death from any cause, end-stage renal disease, sustained remission, serious adverse events, uh, serious infections, and then there was a health-related quality of life. Um, the high, the plasmapheresis arm was analyzed by intention to treat and the high and low dose glucocorticoid arms were analyzed for, per protocol. So if you crossed over, they, they would move you for that. Uh, and it was a non-inferiority trial. They weren't expecting the low dose to do better. Um, another plasma characteristic, uh, baseline characteristics, and they were all well matched, but then you would expect them to be well matched. You, I mean, 40.6% versus 40.6% uh, because of their, degree, their multiple stratifications. And the primary analysis uh, of their primary endpoint of death or end stage renal disease uh, showed no difference in the, PVA- the confidence intervals, all contained one. Um, so, uh, and even after they waited a year, the confidence interval still. Um, still was one, although you'll notice it's kind of edging down there with plasma exchange being better. Um, your Kaplan-Meier curves uh, showed this little bit of separation maybe early, but nothing later. Uh, and similarly, the reduced dose versus standard dose, um, the glucocorticoids, Kind of crossed and there was in the end no statistical difference by kaplan Meyer analysis
2: Ugh.
1: I agree the secondary endpoint of uh, of death from any cause was was also the same between two groups but again based on previous trials I wouldn't have suspected it the real question was, Uh, sustained remission versus end-stage kidney disease, and um, you didn't see a difference, but I'd also point out that you're analyzing people who uh, have GFRs, which are quite good, and you wouldn't expect necessarily either, certainly plasma exchange to have done anything for that group. Uh, Serious adverse events, no difference in infections, um, the reduced dose arm had fewer infections. So one thing that I would take out of this trial is maybe we don't need to give 60 milligrams of prednisone for three straight months in these folks who, um, who come to us. So um my observations uh concerning this trial are that the heterogeneity of the population where you were mixing people with um minor ANCA disease the, the average creatinine in this group was in the 3s on our in milligrams per deciliter so half the people had creatinines of better than the mid threes. So you are mixing those folks with folks who have severe renal dysfunction, creatinines of 5.6 are being on dialysis, and that muddied the water for the analysis of all the groups in the trial. Um, again, I've already complained to the, about um, the fact that they had an outcome of mortality and it was part of their composite outcome, which previous studies have never demonstrated a benefit of plasmapheresis, at least in terms of mortality. Um, Finally, if you look at the size of the group uh, with creatinines of greater than 500 micromoles per liter, um, size of that group is similar to the size of the whole groups, of the whole group that was studied in MEPEX. And my suspicion is that a meta-analysis of those severe PECS uh, patients in this trial uh, combined with the MEPEX trial would continue to show a benefit uh, of plasmapheresis in this group. Um, does anybody wish to make any other comments?
3: I, I have a question. This is John. John. Yeah. So, um, MePEX really only followed out to a year. Mm-hmm. And you had shown the Kaplan or the inverted Kaplan-Meyer curve showing that there was some quote-unquote signal that was detected during that time point. Yeah, Did they or you, can you comment on whether or not that actually, as you said, kind of
1: parallels? Uh, what was I believe Mepex? the comment was that at no point was the uh, p-value significant. And so, yeah, you're right in that this was a trial that goes on. You'll notice that the numbers get awfully small here at six years. Any other comments? So I was, uh, it was last uh, spring, and uh, we had a patient, and I was like, we should start on the Mepex trial, and the resident said, well, we have this trial that shows plasma exchange doesn't help in anchovasculitis." He was right on top of reading his New England journals, and I didn't have a lot to say to him then, but all I got to say now is I don't think this uh, trial is going to change my clinical practice. Any other, anybody wish to uh, take the pro position against my con position?
2: I'm also in the con position. Um, the BVAS scores overall for that whole study was really low. Um, they're, they're not sick people. They have incapacititis, yep. but they're not sick.
1: The, um, the, in the supplementals, which the New England Journal makes it hard to get, hard to copy. The uh, supplemental information did examine those folks with uh, trimetazidine greater than five hundred micromoles. It wasn't. Um, it certainly tended towards the benefit arm, but it did cross. But it did cross one.
4: Uh, it's interesting that uh, this uh, trial uh, like. A few others that I've seen uh, recently, in the attempt to make uh, everything perfect and cover all angles and uh, uh, really make sure that the design and the enrollment, uh, the type of patients that you get is ideal, you diluting so much that in the end it's uh, hard to to gather a conclusion and uh, what how what you need to do in your practice. Yep. Chalong. Ah.
0: Uh- Yes, so, so I guess uh, probably it would be helpful, at least to me, to put in a context of uh, what are we trying to accomplish with immunosuppression versus in uh, all prasmophoresis. So let's say if uh, we believe, I think there are some, I'm, I'm my understanding, there are some evidence ANCA uh, is mediated by the antibody, right? for antibody. So it's pathogenesis, not just for diagnosis. So if that's the case, and uh, like anti-GBM, uh, uh, GBM disease, you know. So so the question is, uh, then uh, uh, I know so I and it's going to take a while to kick in. So we use uh, high-pulse uh, st- steroids, you know. So has anyone who uh, followed uh, antibody titer uh, with this kind of management and then get some idea of why in some setting work better why it's not the other thing i want to say is i think jayish and i uh, had a, a, a anti-gbm patient a couple months ago or maybe a year ago which uh, very rarely we actually caught it in uh is uh, 1.2 or ish you know very low and i was came in on saturday and I told Jayesh, we have the biopsy and uh, we called Danny and Danny is grateful came in to read the biopsy the same day with biopsy. So we uh, knowing the you know, uh, 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 transfusion uh, uh, division, they don't come in to do plasma exchange over the weekend. I think that uh, uh, Melissa also is aware of this case, you know. So we paused with Plenison, uh even before we did a biopsy, you know. And so this is one of the cases we got it very early on and we fully expect everything is going to recover, but it keeps progressing. And so, but we recheck rechecked uh, uh, antibody uh, periodically and it seems to be quite rebound, keep coming back, you know. So, so when we were in this case, I was so disappointed. We caught it so early and I we hope was going to recover. It's a young guy, you know, uh, who is is ICU nurse in some other rural uh, hospital. Uh, but, you know, and it didn't happen the way we would hope for the patient. But then the other things I was quite interested in is how, uh, 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 again, transfusion medicine, uh, they, for some reason, they have a very rich schedule, they do every other day and they don't do it over the weekend, you know? And so that make me feel like if that's what we think is help and if it's low antibodies is important, uh, and if that's the protocol we stick to, uh, and is that part of a reason we are not seeing good effect of this or not? I, I don't know, I'm just, you know, want to raise the question. But most importantly, I want to know whether it's low in antibody is considered uh, 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 therapeutic beneficial for the patient and does any of these uh, trials follow that or not? That's that's kind of a long-winded question.
1: I'm not aware of anybody who follows uh, ANCA um, titers early in the course of disease. uh, I will say that over the long term, For renal outcomes, there's no evidence of a good correlation between ANCA titers and renal outcomes. There is, the pulmonologists really like to look at them because there is a correlation between pulmonary outcomes and ANCA vasculitis. I think I saw a couple of um, abstracts on that. But really early on, you just hope to go down. Now I have Uh, measured ankylvasculitis or the ANCA levels uh, clinically, and all I can say is I see them go down and I pat myself on the back when that occurs, but I'm not sure that I've really changed the outcomes. Well, I do think I've changed the outcomes by doing plasmapheresis, but not by achieving any given level of ANCA, lowering of ANCA titers.
4: Doug, do you have a different opinion on anti-GBM titers? Because the, there is a controversy there too. When uh, when I have one of those patients and discussing uh, with the blood bank, um, even uh, with uh, rheumatology, I've been told uh, not to that we don't follow titers. And from what I've seen in the literature, I think it's uh, helpful to to follow titers. Uh, so I was curious, uh, since we're talking about titers, what your opinion is on- uh... I do
1: not have an opinion on anti-GBM titers. Haven't looked at it.
4: Um, so, so
0: have you, uh, what happened to the patient I'm referring to? I, you, you, you know which one I'm talking about? Is oh, young? Oh, yeah. Young.
4: Did
0: he um, expect to recover at all or he ended up listing for transplant? You know, I can give you an update on that patient. I actually saw him in the transplant clinic. He did not recover. And by the way, he had anti-GBM disease, not an anchor vasculitis. I I know. Yeah. Uh Um, And um, I have to say that uh, when we have needed plasmapheresis on the weekend, um, uh, we do get it done. Do we get it
5: done consistently? No. Um, um, I um, wonder if a discussion between staff and staff might have had um, an impact. They generally don't like to do plasma phoresis on weekends because they have to pay
0: overtime to the phoresis people. But I believe that they will
5: do it if there is sufficient justification. It might just take um, a little bit higher level of interaction. All right, thank you. A uh, quick question, uh, Doug. So I know you're... Uh, uh, you know, it's your practice is not going to change in terms of plasma freezes, but you, you know, kind of alluded to the point about, you know, uh, using a lower dose steroids. Uh, uh, is that going to change? Uh, like, you know, we all of us love to give very high dose steroids. And again, uh, I think nobody knows what to do with the first three days, you know, yeah. whether you give 250, 500, or 1,000. Nobody is going to ever study it, and I generally prefer 250, 500, it's practice-based. But what after that, are you going to switch from, you know, that 60 milligram uh, dose down to, you know, what they did in this study, which was, you know, they used lower, and they did pretty fast tapers by three months.
1: So the answer is yes, I, I think I will be using lower doses. The problem is that their dosing scheme is so complicated. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not gonna, it's just... and, you, and even worse than that, you got to look in the supplement, dig through this. If you wanted to use it, you have to dig through the supplemental information to get to it. So, uh, I, I probably will do it, but I will do it by kind of guessing.
5: Yeah, they they mentioned that they used a weight based regimen, but, yeah. but even in that weight based, there are three regimens for the lower range you
0: know, yeah. 20,
5: 35, 40, and uh. But but they did actually again. I was just looking at one of the regimens just few weeks back too. They did uh, pretty, you know, uh, uh, compared to what we do, they were able to taper it down pretty fast by yep. even four to six weeks. Yep.
0: So so Manish, uh, uh, you you know the disease much better. So does uh, the consensus though, do we know that is uh, antibody is pathogenic. And follow it helpful. Now, I guess that I'm just curious. Uh, can you just say you've paused for many days and follow and got tighter? And if it's yeah. had to improve, and I might something on uh, the plasma for instance to remove antibody will be helpful. Are these yeah. Are these approach make any sense? So,
5: and then that's you know if you, if you you know every time I talk to Ron Falk and whenever he comes there, so so we know that these antibodies are pathogenic, but. I, I think the evidence with following the titers you know i don't know whether you know the serum titers correlate with the disease activity we know that they are you know at least um, in one of the models you know it is it has been shown to be pathogenic and they uh, and again there've been cases where you know uh, it's been shown to be transferred Uh, to the kid if the mom had uh, the antibodies and they developed some certain similar kind of features. But I think the controversy still exists about following uh, the serum titers and whether they correlate with disease activity. And I don't think there's an answer to that. Uh, My practice has been, I generally do check it if it goes away, you know, and again, if there's a disease activity which returns, and I'm, I check the titers again, and if they're high, I follow them very closely. But I still follow with you know my usual clinical parameters and lab parameters. Uh, otherwise,
1: and and if the uh, serum, my my own observation is is that if the serum titers stay high uh, after your seven antibody treatments, the uh, you're. Uh, they're not going to prolong them. I mean, the standard is yeah. to give seven, and you're done.
5: And actually, yeah, we we and I, uh, you know, in few cases we had we were following those levels, and we even extended it to, you know, um, and it, it it's been some time to about ten to twelve sessions. But most of these cases, we were not able to even get the titers down in those cases, even with ten to twelve sessions.
4: So I think uh, the question about uh, titers, uh, I think what we, where we have some info is if you have a disappearance of the antibodies, then uh, obviously yeah. the prognosis is better. If they reappear later, uh, again, uh, disease is active, as you would expect, uh, and uh, less likely to respond uh, to repeat treatment. But uh, as, as far as following titers, uh, I agree with everybody. I don't think there is data there. And to Manish's uh, question on steroids, uh, you know, when you talk with the guys at Chapel Hill, they tell you that we are over-immunosuppressing everybody mm-hmm. and that uh, 125 or even 250 of solimedrol are all that somebody will need for for induction and then uh, for maintenance. Uh, the, the sooner you are able to taper down the steroids, the better because we've gotten used with uh, really high doses of immunosuppression in general and steroids in particular.
5: Agreed.
3: I think a harder question that I would ask is in patients that had already gotten solumedrol or uh, are having a, or some other immunosuppression uh, who are presumably at higher risk for for, uh, opportunistic infection, uh, whether or not this would sway your likelihood of phorescing them. And I don't have an opinion on that, but I was curious if anyone was brave enough to comment.
1: The uh, standard that I have seen here is that uh, folks, do that we here have done both. <coughs> we have given three days of some some amount of solumedrol, and we plasma them if their creatinine is greater than 5.6. So yes, we may be uh, over over treating people, and that may be resulting in greater um, greater infectious complications. But I don't think we've looked at that. And you know, we got a lot got a lot of patients over the years who've had Anka here. So, I guess the, go uh, ahead. I'm sorry.
0: What, go
3: ahead. What do we
0: think of the plasma for recent, For reason? about if the antibody title doesn't matter, uh, what's the purpose? I guess it's exchange everything uh, Yeah, That's some I, kind of a evil stuff. But more than, uh,
1: you take out the evil humors and you do seven exchanges and generally you're done.
0: Yeah, we don't know exactly what we follow. I mean, seven, ten. 10, uh,
4: well, but that's that. why I asked about anti-GBM because in an anti-GBM I do follow the titers and uh, I'm looking for them uh, to, to drop and that's when I stop. I don't do just the, the seven treatments.
1: Any other comments?
0: so just a quick question um uh, in in the same along the same lines of, of maybe following up the titers what is the value that you give to you know active uh, like like a, as a follow up like for recurrence of hematuria um sometimes we get biopsies that you know patients that have get rebiopsied because of recurrence of hematuria but then I know there is the sample issue, but we have sometimes
2: just fibrous crescents and the crescents are not very active. And there is always a concern of under-sampled um, biopsy. So what would be, since serology is
0: not, you know, completely reliable, or what is the value of bringing
2: uh, hematuria, perhaps RBC tests into clinical decision?
1: Um, I, 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 The RBC casts help me with diagnosis. I don't think they help. Well, they help me think that somebody's going to do well if the RBC casts disappear. And having somebody with RBC casts that have gone away and come back certainly makes me worry about uh, recurrence. Uh, In terms of biopsy, I think biopsy does change our clinical practice. the uh, initial biopsy, if it's showing fibrous crescents, and that's all we see, and we see an elevated creatinine, uh, yeah. We, my experience is I've seen me and other folks uh, put them on steroids for three days, and you plasma free some, but you really don't expect a whole lot to come back. And so I think that leads us to uh, earlier tapering of. Um, immunosuppressives in these folks. And yeah, maybe they get a dose of rituximab and a second one, but we don't really push them that hard because we just don't expect uh, anything to come back if it's just a lot of fibrous crescents. Similarly, if what you see is mostly cellular crescents, then um, that leads us to aggressively treat.
0: Thank you.
3: I think uh since there's a little bit more time, I just wanted to comment about the difficulty of of changing clinical practice um you know this i I haven't read it nearly as detailed as as you have doug, but um you know this does sound like a very large clinical trial that accrued patients over many years um, and yet uh, I think we've justly raised a lot of questions about how we can apply it to a much smaller trial. Um, that was, that captured data over a shorter period of time where it's easier to find significant differences. And I mean, to me, I think I would continue to plasma exchange people, but I am kind of skeptical of, you know, when, if ever, are we going to get a clinical trial that's large enough over a longer enough period of time to to stop doing something in a disease that we worry is going to cause you know ESRD. Uh, I think my yeah. point is that I think the our desire to do something uh, may be kind of a bias for us to um, to uh, change our practice.
1: I I yes, um, and it, you're right in that this trial had a longer. Follow-up than the earlier trial. I'd also say that uh, having somebody not on dialysis for two years, when otherwise they would be, even if they later go on to end-stage renal disease, that is a that is a benefit to the patient.
3: Absolutely.
2: I agree mm-hmm. with you in, in a sense that nephrology, we have a we have trouble believing. Randomized controlled trials when they're available, we you know always tend to say, Oh, you know, that population is not the population. Or I mean, I, I agree this isn't gonna change my practice, but I feel like we tend to do that. We have trouble changing our behavior. Like right now, SPLT2. I mean, what kind of evidence do we need? They withdrew the DAPA trial because of a benefit, you know. When are we gonna start prescribing? You know, when are we gonna start changing our behaviors? We we have trouble. And we have to start acknowledging that too.
1: Yeah. That is certainly the case. That um, the the cardiologists found, find trials that have a absolute benefit of 0.5 percent or less, and it immediately changes their benefit, their, their practice. Uh, but you're right. I mean, like I said, I've been coming to these um, to these for 30 years, and we are a highly critical subspecialty.
5: So uh, the, this question is for uh, Jonathan Ochaolong. So I know we have uh, uh, knockout models for MPO and you know we have more evidence of MPO antibodies being pathogenic. And again, even that placental transfer of anti-MPO bodies from uh, the mother to the child who developed pulmonary renal syndrome, it was all MPO antibodies. So are we... Again, are we looking at two different kind of, you know, um, diseases and we are combining all of them under ANCA and that's why we are not getting the results which we uh, need to, or, you know, do we do we need to do more phenotype, genotype correlations and develop studies based on that? Because all the evidence when we look at, you know, not all, but majority of the evidence uh, about ANCA is being pathogenic and which has been proven is, is again, mostly in MPO antibodies. And plus, we also know that ANCA antibodies are not just MPO and PR3. There's lactoferrin, and there are a lot of other antibodies which we still don't pick up. So it's this kind of heterogeneous kind of a field.
1: The, um, you know, the outcomes of the sub of that, those sub-studies, MPO versus ANCA, were consistent with the main outcomes in both of the trials we're talking about. So in MEPEX, both MPO and PR3 showed showed effect. And in the Plexivas trial, there is no effect in either, either. MPO or PR3. Um, I I think, you know, in general, MPO is a worse disease than PR3. I think it has worse outcomes.
5: I thought PR3 has worse outcomes.
1: Good question. Maybe we should sick a fellow to to make sure which of us is right. <laughs> um. I, I thought that MPO was more likely to recur.
3: Minak, no, no, no. she said PR3, PR3 and I, PR3. I, I, yeah, PR3. I think I think it's PR3.
5: It's okay. PR3 is the worst
1: one. Okay.
2: Although interestingly, MPO I think is more associated with infections and there's like a new article that just came out related to that. So it they they may be different. That'd be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, so many gy don't follow this literature very well. So so if I if I heard you right, you said the uh, pathogenic is more associated with MPO, antibody, not PR three. Yeah. That might be the if PR3 is uh, correlated with disease better and is not pathogenic, that would speak to whether the the antibody is really uh, pathogenic or not for the Cnca PR3. So, so I guess the, uh, without a better understanding of the disease pathogenesis and then uh, uh, what are the markers for the disease. I think there is always going to be a controversy and a subject to individual <laughs> practice preference, you know. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's um, as much as I can comment because I don't follow, I don't do experimental model because I don't follow literature on this topic well.
5: And it's, it's, it's surprising that all the, you know, all the uh, uh, reports and again, Melissa and you know, Bharat and I had published on hydralazine associated, you know, drug associated anchor vasculitis too. It's all, it's always actually MPO, very high titers, and again, it behaves totally differently than your usual anchor associated vasculitis because you stop the drugs, a little bit of uh, you know, immunosuppressants, and things are better. So it's it's. it's it's, it's, it's really interesting that we have different, you know, again, this is one commonality is that they have anchor, but, but how they behave is kind of very different based on, uh, you know, what is triggering it and mm-hmm. uh, what is the uh, phenotype. Yeah,
0: so, so many do you think we have enough uh, patient to stratify into MPO versus the PRC, and to some kind of a, at least a study to uh, a, 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 a retrospective uh, look at whether the potential difference and maybe even going forward with kind of a more prospective uh, study, case, you know, I mean, given that we have a large population of patients.
5: Yeah. I, I think we have enough cases and again, uh, you know, uh, uh, Melissa and I were looking at some of the previous, you know, our database. So we have really good number of patients. And I think we need to do something prospectively. That's where the need is, because I've always been really surprised that, you know, we have more anchor than uh, I, you know, people would expect. Uh, in in this kind of location, every time I speak to somebody from outside, they're like, Oh, we don't see enough anchor. And I'm like, you know, we are loaded with you know, every uh, two or three weeks, uh, we get somebody with ankyovasculitis. So this is more than I think, you know, uh, I think it needs to be prospectively studied and we need to have a database there too. And I think we have the numbers.
2: Yep, and we're in the process of doing all of that that um, as well. So hopefully before too long, we'll start the prospective and then we're, we're trying to catch up with more of our retrospective patients here. So, yep. That's,
5: so that's it would be good
2: to though. compare.
3: Melissa, you're, you're the one spearheading that?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, with, yep, with Dr. Sneja and Dr. Joel. And if you have more recommendations on what you wanna look at, uh, please let me know. I'm almost done with the red cap. I'm just trying to finalize that so we can capture our data.
1: Okay, I think we've reached the end of our hour.
3: Thank you very much, Todd. Thank you all. Yep,
1: bye-bye. Thanks.